Well, thank you, everyone. And I have to admit, I got a little bit nervous when Father started praying because I was afraid he'd uh, stolen my opening scripture passage. Thankfully, I looked to a different gospel to draw the story from, so I'd like to begin with the reading from the Gospel of Luke. Very familiar because of Father's prayer, but there's an element that I'd like to use to sort of frame my own experience. While the crowd was pressing in on Jesus and listening to the Word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. He saw two boats there alongside the lake. The fishermen had disembarked and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, he asked him to put out a short distance from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the crowds from the boat. After he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and lower your nets for a catch. Simon said in reply, Master, we have worked hard all night and have caught nothing, but at your command I will lower the nets. When they had done this, they caught a great number of fish and their nets were tearing. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come to help them. They came and filled both boats so that they were in danger of sinking. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at the knees of Jesus and said, Depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For astonishment at the catch of fish, they had made, seized him and all those with him. And likewise, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners of Simon. Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. When they brought their boats to the shore, they left everything and followed him. Depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Uh, if you looked at the flyer at all, had a chance to see it, uh, it uses the language that God kind of found me in the confessional. And in many ways, that's where I look to point when I talk about my own experience of God's call. Actually, I'm a, a terrible fisherman. I think I've only ever been fishing once or twice in my life. Um, but I'm an excellent sinner. And so I spend a lot of time in the confessional. And so uh, I was in about sixth grade and had gone to confession and I'd gone behind the screen and uh, our pastor sat on the other side of the, the screen and I'm sure he heard a young voice and I'm sure he recognized me. But after I'd confessed, he just said to me, have you ever thought about being a priest? It was as simple as that. It was that one question that was the open door that the Holy Spirit used just as Jesus invited Peter, James, and John he started to work in my heart in that moment. That was the sort of seed of my vocation, but seed has to be put into good ground. And so when I talk about my vocation, I think when anybody talks about their vocation, it does everybody a benefit to look back and look at the family that helped to create the soil that the seed is planted in. So my family always was open about the idea of priesthood or for my sister to be a religious sister. She got married five weeks ago, so she's living a different vocation. But nonetheless, we spoke about vocations. My parents loved priests. They respected them. We interacted with our priests. I was very much uh, impressed with our pastor already. So this invitation didn't come out of a void. It was timed. It was the work of the Spirit. But that experience of mercy was key. Peter sense, I am a sinful man. As a sixth grader, maybe I didn't quite have all of the depth of understanding what that was, but that came later. But 
that first idea that my call really was spoken in the sacrament of confession is central. And yes, it was nourished by going to Catholic schools and it was nourished by everything that came afterwards because I oftentimes point to the fact that really uh, people when they hear vocation stories or maybe they're familiar with the lives of the saints or they look what Peter, James, and John and the other apostles experienced, it's full of miracles, it's full of great revelations, and even then they don't get it. My story really isn't too much like that. My story is full of small moments, of little moments of grace and invitation from the Holy Spirit. It's quiet, it's gentle. And at first I felt a little apprehensive about that when I was in seminary because you hear men who have had profound conversions, who have experienced miraculous things, and I go, that isn't me. It was quiet, it was gentle. Now I'm very grateful for it because I think those big moments, those miraculous moments, they're great gifts. The church needs them. But so also do all of us need that reminder that God is working in and loves working in the silence and the quiet, gently, tenderly, as a father inviting us to become more and more like his son, to approach him closer and closer. So I relish the fact now that God called me so gently and continued to, to call me gently. So I'm going to fast forward a little bit since that's really much of my experience from sixth grade until I was in high school. It was these gentle, continual invitations. The idea of priesthood was always sort of the thing that I'd come back to. I might think of other ideas. I did martial arts. I loved maybe the idea of teaching that or, gosh, I like to be a doctor. I think every little kid maybe goes through the phase where they'd like to be a doctor, but priesthood never left my mind, never left my heart. And in many ways, that was also my experience of being a disciple. Well, Jesus has called me, and James, John, and Peter, it was all the same. They were called to follow Jesus, to be fishers of men, but that meant following him, being a disciple. And so this path continued until I was in about 10th grade, and then I've got to let you in on a little bit of the background of my story. I'm not from Iowa. So I'm actually from a military family. My dad was in the Air Force, and so we moved around a fair amount when I was a kid. Maybe not as much as most military families, but moved around enough that we'd kind of become stable in Yorktown, Virginia, southern Virginia on the East Coast. It was very comfortable there. I loved it. I lived there for eight years. And then at the end of my 10th grade year of of school, mom and dad say, by the way, your dad got a job with this company, Rockwell Collins, in a place called Cedar Rapids, Iowa. And my reaction was the mature 10th grade response, Cedar Rapids, Iowa? I don't want to go to Iowa. I hate Iowa. Well, I'd never been to Iowa, but I had, you know, the 10th grader's knowledge and wisdom of what this awful change in my life was going to bring. And so, I didn't openly rebel. I think mom and dad will attest to that, but interiorly this was the beginning of a wandering from God. I'd grown up, I was supportive of the faith, I believed in it, I'd grown to understand it better through high school, but what had gotten in was anger, and that was one of the biggest threats to my following Jesus as a disciple. This anger seized hold of me and I hid it. I isolated myself from my family. 
I didn't reach out and make new friends very well when we moved to Iowa, but I was a very good actor. I did a good job of putting up a front of somebody, oh yes, I'm still thinking about being a priest. I still do the church thing. I was in the seat at St. Jude Parish every week when I was in high school, but in my heart, it was about as far as you could be. I wandered to some very dark places because I felt alone and I felt trapped by my anger. I didn't know how life was going to get better, which again, some of that's teenage angst, but when you're in 11th grade, it seems like everything. It seems like this world that I'd built for myself had fallen apart. And so priesthood, sure, I guess it's another option, but I wasn't talking to God. My prayer consisted of 10 Hail Marys each night. And I think that was the lifeline that pulled me through that year. But that was all. I didn't have a relationship with Jesus anymore. I was in a dark place. That changed, thankfully. I went on a retreat. Uh, Franciscan University of Steubenville puts on these retreats, and I went, and uh, they offered to pray over me at the course of this retreat. And in that moment, I hadn't told anybody about this darkness or this anger that I was holding on to, and I wasn't planning on doing it there either. I came up with some lame thing that I wanted them to pray for. And I remember the person who was praying over me looked at me and went, really, is that what you want us to pray for? It's like he knew. I'm sure the anger was just bubbling beneath the surface, but he saw right through it. And so they prayed for my little fake intention for a little while. And then finally I felt moved and I poured it out and I, I wept for 40 minutes. I think I lost track of time, but it all, all this year of venom, of anger, of isolation, of fear, of sadness, it came pouring out. Lord, I'm a sinful man, depart from me. And he didn't. It was in that moment that I felt embraced, that I felt renewed. I was brought back to life really that all of the sudden, all the stuff that I'd wandered away from interiorly came back. Jesus brought it back to life and fired me with a new fire, a new direction. And suddenly, that light, that invitation that I had received in sixth grade was blazing in a way it hadn't before. And so I started my senior year actually asking the question, okay, God, what do you want me to do? I think this priesthood thing is it. I'm ready. Uh, just tell me where to go, but not to Iowa. That was the one caveat that I'd put on my plan for my life. Of course, it was God's plan, but really it was mine. And so we were living in Iowa, and Mom and Dad said, well, you know, there's a seminary program for the Archdiocese of Dubuque at Loris College, just, just up the road. It's in Dubuque, about an hour and a half from here. No, no, thanks. I'm really not interested. And so I pulled a bit of a Jonah, and I went all the way back out to the East Coast and joined a religious order in New York for a year, the Redemptorists. I went to St. John's University in New York, and I went, this is a good thing. It's back on the East Coast. It's back at home. And it took about two months before I realized maybe I should have asked God what he wanted because it was like wearing somebody else's shoes. It just didn't quite feel right. I wasn't at home. Things weren't clicking. It just didn't feel right. Again, God had healed me of this anger, of this darkness that I was clinging to, but apparently I hadn't let my ears get quite as cleaned out as they should have been because there was a bit of stubbornness that I was still holding on to that, no, okay, God, you can call me, sure, but 
some of this is mine, right? This is, this, this is a cooperation. This is an act that we're doing together. So I get like 50% of the say, right? The geography is mine to determine. I'll do whatever else. Well, no, I just continued to be unhappy, to kind of be listless, like, okay, I thought this was going to be something else. And so two months in, I start making contact with the Archdiocese of Dubuque again. I start emailing the priest who'd been my spiritual director here, helped me get into seminary. And he very wisely said, look, stay the year out. It's not uncommon to feel a little bit panicky when you get somewhere. Just be patient. So I spent the rest of the year discerning. Dad drove me up to Loris College when I was home over Christmas break, and I went and visited the seminary there. Some of the uh, seminarians who are now ordained priests said when they saw me, they went, he's never coming back. <laughs> Thanks, guys. But nonetheless, I went back after Christmas break, and I prayed about it for a while and felt peace for the first time in a few months. Went, I think I know what I'm supposed to do. So I emailed uh, my spiritual director and I said, I think I've come to this decision, but here are a few things I'm scared about. And he emailed me back and he said, do it. Just what's the, what's the worst that could happen? Do it, take that leap of faith. And so, okay, I, I did it, sure. And I uh, called Father Schatz, Father David Schatz, the vocation director for the Archdiocese of Dubuque the very next day and said, let's get this thing started. I finished out the year in New York and couldn't have been happier to get on the airplane to come back home. So my sophomore year of college, I started at Loris College in Dubuque, Iowa, member of St. Pius X Seminary and a citizen of the state of Iowa. <laughs> God got me. And I am so very happy, so very happy, because these last six and a half years that I've been in formation for the Archdiocese of Dubuque have been the happiest of my life. And not simply because, great, I'm perfect, I'm finished now, I've got it all figured out, because I think we sometimes think that about seminarians, about priests, about sisters. They're somehow closer to God, more perfect. Well, depart from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. I'm stubborn, I can be quick-tempered, I'm slow to listen, I'm a little lazy. All of these things, God continued to work in my heart. And so, a second scripture passage that's been significant, been important for me, now all of this time being a disciple and in formation. It's the very end of John's Gospel, and again, it's Jesus and Peter, and Peter has once again proven he is in fact a sinful man. He denied Jesus. But it's after Jesus' resurrection. It's the first time they've had a chance to meet. It's John 21. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He then said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was distressed that he had said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. And so this question of love, do you love me? 
That became the central question now, and really it's the central question for all of our lives, regardless of how Jesus calls us to be his disciples. Do you love me? Do you love me in your wife? Do you love me in your husband? Do you love me in your children? Do you love me in the people of your parish? Do you love me in the poor? Well, there was still work to be done in that for me. There still is. But in a pretty serious way, in that year where I had just been grasped by this darkness and this anger, I isolated myself. I'd really closed myself off to knowing how to love authentically, how to form friendships, how to show the joy of being loved by Jesus Christ to other people. And so, these last six and a half years that I've been in formation for the Archdiocese of Dubuque have been lessons in learning how to love. And again, most of them very small lessons, things that would be insignificant if I shared them here. If I shared them really at all, they mean so much to me, but that's the beauty. God works intimately. But there's one that's significant. Uh, it was my junior year of college. Uh, two of my very best friends had discerned that they were in fact called to marriage and not to life in the seminary. And so uh, I'd helped them with that. We'd talked about it and we'd prayed together and discerned it together. And so I felt like, hey, I got this celibacy thing figured out. I've helped two of my buddies in discernment and I'm doing great. And then I met a really, really nice girl at Loris College. It was a wonderful young Catholic woman and I was just kind of head over heels and still in the seminary. And so I'm very confused all of a sudden. I'm like, I came to Iowa and now I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. And so I spent much of that year trying to figure out, okay, God, what are you trying to do here? I, I mean, I've always, since sixth grade, like calling me to be a priest, maybe it's leading me to here. And so I went back and forth, back and forth, and I uh, got to our spring retreat in the seminary my junior year, and finally, uh, had it out with God a little bit as I was laying in bed, again, very mature kind of moment in my life. I'm laying there and as I'm discerning this, I realize, you know, our Christian vocation, again, however it shapes itself, whether it's the priesthood to be a sister, to be a father, to be a mother, it's all about love. Self-emptying, giving of ourselves, uh, being called outside of ourselves in the service of the gospel. That's what our baptism calls us to. So our vocation then should point us to that better. Well, I compared the two ideas. I was like, okay, well, if I left, I felt free to do so if that's what I discerned. If I left and started dating this girl and let's say got married, okay, well, I know this is the job that I could have. And you know, this, this young woman, she makes me feel this way. And this is what we could do with our lives, really, with my life. And I realized in that moment that as wonderful as this young woman was, as great as things could be, it was all about me. It was turning back in on myself. Whereas when I'd been in seminary, there'd been a lot of days where it hadn't felt great, but it had been pushing me outside of myself. You know those people who are poor, who you're supposed to be paying attention to? Go serve them. Go cook a meal for them. You know that brother who lives down the hall from you, brother seminarian, how he really, really annoys you? Guess what? He needs somebody to sit and be with him. All of these things, these little tiny moments, seminary had been the thing that turned me outward, 
had turned me to be attentive to the needs of the people around me and had taught me to give more of myself to God. So clearly, I could see, okay, if a vocation calls us outside of ourselves, calls us to love God and to love his people, then there wasn't a question anymore. I was called to be in seminary. I was called to stay, to be formed, to be a priest. But I can tell you that was the last answer that I wanted to come to at that point because I was in love. Well, gosh, this is great. And so I took all of that anger that I had in my, in my life, I kind of fired it back up again, and I laid there, and with all my might, I thought, God, why does nothing work the way I want it to? Again, very mature, very adult, right? A very a temper tantrum. And I didn't hear anything. I told you there weren't any visions in this story, nothing huge or magnificent. But in that moment, something shifted in my heart. I didn't hear a voice, but I felt an answer. Aaron, it's because I'm saving you for myself. And in that moment, my whole life pivoted. Suddenly, all of these little things that have been going on really since before I was born, but since I'd been conscious of in sixth grade, they all shifted. Suddenly, I saw that this was not about my plan, my charting a course and being this perfect disciple of Jesus by checking all of the boxes. This was a love story. I'd been pursued by God from the very beginning and indeed set apart in this way that my vocation wasn't simply some grand gift that I could give of myself to the world because I'm so great. This is a gift that God gave to me to a sinful man because he loved me, because he wanted to show what he could do with a sinful man. He wanted to show that even in that brokenness, even in that sinfulness, he can be reflected. And so the last part of that story of Jesus and John talking is Jesus telling John, uh, when you were younger, you used to dress yourself, go where you wanted. But I tell you, when you're older, you'll stretch out your hands. Someone else will dress you and you will go where you do not want to go. And John adds in the little addendum, this is Jesus telling him how he's going to die. Peter dies upside down on a cross in Rome to witness for the gospel, to witness for his Lord, to witness for the same Jesus that he denied. And then it says, Jesus looked at him and said, follow me. Peter, myself, a little stubborn, likes to look around. He looks at John, the beloved disciple, and he goes, well, what about him? It's a fair question, I guess. And Jesus says, what does it matter? What if I want him to live until I come again? You follow me. And so these two questions, Peter, do you love me? And then, what follow me? They go together. Yes, to be a priest means my life is going to be not about me. It's going to be turned outside of itself so that I can imitate Jesus in emptying himself out of love for his people. But at the very same time, it's this call to be deeply in love with him, to respond to a love that's already there. And so that moment, I'm saving you for myself, is the high point of my life. Those of you who are married, think about when your spouse 
told you the first time that they loved you. It was that moment. Everything turned, and suddenly my life was not about me anymore. And so, this vocation, if you know anybody who you think a young man, guy maybe who has already graduated from college, if you yourself are thinking about it, take that chance to ask God what he wants of you. Because perhaps that answer is going to be, I'm saving you from myself. And indeed, Jesus loves all of us perfectly, fully, absolutely. But there's something that I've discovered about the gift of the celibate calling. Of course, you know, that's the hot button issue. Well, if we only let priests get married, then the vocation crisis would be solved. But the problem with vocations is not a matter of whether or not we can be married. It is a problem of love, though. It's a problem of understanding that the gift of being called to be a priest is a mark, is a gift that Jesus gives freely, and yes, to very sinful men. But Peter himself illustrates what that love for a sinful man can do. And so all of these last seven years of being in seminary, before that to sixth grade and before that to the moment that I was conceived, Jesus' love has been shaping me, just as it's been shaping each and every one of us. And so that idea, in saving you from myself, should echo in each of our lives echoes in mine and has been the great gift that in six months and five days uh, I'll be able to truly enter into a new beginning because that's ordination day at the cathedral in Dubuque and will be the chance to respond to that great gift of love from Jesus in loving the people that he gives to me. And so if there's anything to take away from this story, uh, from my story of vocation and discipleship, it's the reminder of how much we're loved by Jesus. Each of us will we'll go, oh, I'm a sinful man, or I'm a sinful woman too. Yeah, we are, we are, but that story doesn't stop there. Confession, the sacraments, those are all key to encountering that love, the love of a God who's been pursuing us from the moment we were conceived. God who wants us not just now to be good disciples, good little soldiers to check the box, but people to be shaped to be just like him, to follow after him, and so by following after him to be with him forever and eternity. So this is our life. This is the gift that's given to each and every one of us. And again, this is a story of a lot of small things. Depart from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. With the answer, follow me. And so I'd ask for your prayers as I continue to do so for my brother seminarians. Also, there are 29 of us in my class who are going to be ordained for various dioceses around the United States. There are 25 guys in formation at various stages for the Archdiocese of Dubuque keep praying that God continues to call people forward to respond to his love in that way so that we can have the sacraments, that we can have the great gift of mercy and confession, the great nourishment of Jesus in the Eucharist. Keep praying, keep supporting, live holy marriages, live holy religious life because it's through that that God will bring all of us to follow him more closely. Thank you already for the prayers that I know that are offered and for the work that you do to take the message of Jesus' love to the world, uh, especially here in Cedar Rapids. So thank you all very much, and God bless you. <laughs>